And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Hey there, Paul. Hey, Ron. How you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. I'm going to do a quick experiment if I can. I've got... Um, I'm going to try to put in some earbuds and see if that functions for us both, if that's okay. That's fine with me, whatever you need to do. Right. Okay. I plug it in, and we'll see if you can hear me. Can you hear me, and can I, I hear can you? I can hear you just fine. Can you hear me? Perfect. Oh, that's great. That's, you know, um, I, I know I'm, I'm 60. I think you're 65. So to deal yeah. with modern technology, who would expect? It, it becomes more of a challenge I wouldn't say necessarily every day, but on a on a regular basis, I um, I just I just keep getting uh, confronted. I just with because <laughs> they just keep with, advancing. They keep advancing. The, the the when I was uh when I was living in Portland and I was going into the studio that I'm a member of there on uh, I didn't go in every day. I'd work at home, but then I'd work a couple of days every week or more in the studio. Because I enjoyed the people I worked with and, you know, that stuff. But also one huge benefit was everybody 30 years younger than me. So they were all much more current. And and so I would be like Grandpa Ron, you know, and they'd, <laughs> they'd, they'd find out something new you could do with, with some graphics design program or, you know, whatever. And I was picking their brains and asking questions. And, you know, sometimes they would – they would benefit from my experience or perspective on stuff too. But a lot of the times, if it had anything to do with technology, how the comic book culture and marketplace were changing and evolving, they were always way ahead of me. So um, that's something that uh, I've always been painfully aware of. So even though I now live at the beach two hours and 40 minutes away from Portland, I still make a point of going into the studio uh, once a month or so when I can swing it and spend a few days working in the studio. You know, I, I look at the pictures that you post and I think, God, my wife would kill to, to live where you live. <laughs> I, and literally, she it's, would kill. <laughs> we we're we feel super lucky. We know you know it's, we know that it's it, it's we have it's a great privilege in a way to to be able to to live here and. Uh, um, it's there, but there are, as I say to people when I talk about it, there are you know whatever trade-offs or things. I mean, there are things that are great about living at the beach, and they work for us. But we're well aware that if if you like doing certain things, this is not the place for you to be. Um, it's a like sleepy little. If you like little, to shovel snow, that's not a good place. Like you, yeah, you don't want to be there if you want to shovel snow. That's true. If you if you like traffic jams, you don't want to be here. But all <laughs> but but like we have some friends in Portland, some some people in the studio. Oh, the beach, and that's great. But I also know these people well enough to know some of them. 
of course, with COVID, everything slowed down, of course, a lot. But but a lot of them, they really enjoy going to the hip new pub in town or seeing the new movies when they come out. And that, you know, we can't do that stuff here. This is it's a different thing. You, I could take walks on the beach instead. That's my excitement. Pre, Pre-COVID, that movie thing would have bothered me more. I think yes. we, you and I have talked about this in the past. And I have we have a room in the house. I'm in this house now two years. Uh, mm-hmm. And I feel privileged that we have as nice a house as we do. So believe me, I'm not complaining. Um, right. We have a room that we call we call it the movie room, and we have a 75 inch <laughs> TV set with surround sound speakers. And Boy, tough to beat that. That's great. Yeah. So it's it's like you know when when a new when we watch a new movie, we go sit there. We you know we. We have the, the, you know, the electric recliner sofa that we sit on and, and, right, and right. you know, we sit back in the lap of luxury and we watch a movie and I don't feel like I'm missing the movie theater quite as much. So yeah. I think there, I could accustom myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I say, there are, you know, we, we don't have, uh, even if you're just doing takeout from restaurants where there aren't the near the choices here that, you know, you don't have the, the array of choices. We do more cooking at home and stuff, but it really depends on how much different aspects of the, you know, the, the urban lifestyle or whatever, how, how, how central those things are to you. I've never been really, a, I mean, I've lived in Portland and all my life, except for the years I spent in New Jersey, but it was always in a fairly densely populated urban-ish sort of environment. And now it's a whole different thing, but, but I'm fine with it really. I really am. <laughs> like okay. I don't miss it that much. I don't have a 75 inch screen, but we have a big enough TV and we stream shows and movies as we need them. And, um, the, the comp, like right now I can look at my studio window and we have a hummingbird feeder and there's a hummingbird working away on it. And oh, my the wind is love that. She, she, yeah. she sits in her chair and she looks out the window. We have the sliding doors. It's Oh, look, there's some bluebirds. Oh, look, there's this, you know, there's a cardinal. Yeah. She gets very exactly, excited yeah. by it. She thinks, you know, she see, she sees the beauty. Uh, and I can appreciate that she does. Uh, yeah, yeah. Whereas I'm like, oh yeah, it's a bird. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So it's different, different strokes. But yeah, all that said, to, to, to know that I, you know, I, I can walk like a five minute walk from my house, and I'm standing on the standing on the sand, and um, and a beach that's almost there's never more than a handful of other people over the course of the several miles I can see or whatever, you know, in either direction. So it's almost like an isolated private beach and, and that's, it's just kind of amazing. So, well, I'll, I'll yeah, give, we're I'll give you a little perspective on, on our situation. <laughs> when we went on our honeymoon, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, we booked the resort and everything. And she says, you know, it's a thousand dollars more for the uh, oceanfront view. And honestly, uh-huh. I could not care less. And she knows, <laughs> but right. I said, it's our honeymoon. If it's going to make you yeah. happy, then oh, do yeah. it. Uh, right. So she gets the oceanfront view, and then we, we get to the room, uh, and, and the first thing she does is run out to the balcony and look at the oh, view, yeah. And, yeah. and she says, where's the ocean view? And it like, well, you have to kind of lean and do this, and she's like, no, 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 oh, no, no, no. We paid $1,000 extra for ocean view. I expect to look out, you know, to be able to sit on the deck and see the ocean. And uh, yeah. we went through a whole big deal over that. So, you know, it is uh, it is important to her. And, yeah. you know, as we get closer to uh, retirement, you know, we, we talk about snowbirding and and she's like, well, I want somewhere where I can get to the beach and see the beach. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to say, go, go visit Ron and Lynn. There you go. <laughs> you can get the full dose. Of course, you know, there's there's uh, Florida beaches and Californian beaches, and North, South Carolina beaches. 
that's one kind of beach. What we have here, like right now, it's very windy, a mist is blowing, and the skies are gray. You know, of course, it is February. Um, we do get nice blue skies and balmy days here, but it's 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 a northern ocean. So, you know, the ocean is beautiful to look at, but it's it, you don't walk around in in a bathing suit or shorts and a tank top. Nobody year wants to see me in shorts and a tank top. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> kind of the same with me. So, uh, but yeah, welcome to come out anytime. We 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 love our place, and it's uh, we're always inviting friends and family from, you know, from Portland and stuff to come down, and um, because we we love the people, and we 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 have a lovely place here. We think, and we like to share that with people. So, yeah. oh, I, I you know just. <laughs> By way of background for anybody listening, because we're already in the show, I guess. Uh, oh, oh. Just by everybody, hi. This is Back to the Bins, and I'm Paul Spataro, <laughs> and I have my special guest, Ron Randall, on with me today. Uh, and as you could hear, we've already been talking. Uh, Ron and I met through our good friends, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, who, Ron, I defy you to come up with two nicer people in the world than Ruth and Darren. No, no, that's there's no way. They're, they're, they're the top of the top of the pyramid on that scale, for sure. And one of the things I like about my relationship with Ron now is Ruth and Darren introduced us not based upon our mutual love of comic books, but our mutual love of movies. Uh, so our first conversation was talking about Star Trek, which I just feel like that is so much better than having become friends with you over comics, because then I always <laughs> feel like a fanboy. But since, uh, right. since we became friends independent of that, I, I feel like we're friends and it's not, it has nothing to do with being a fanboy, which I right, kind of like. It's, yeah, it's based on mutual interest, you know, shared interest, and uh, which is what every good friendship is based on, it seems. And I have sitting, I pulled out sitting in front of me, I have a copy before I met Ron of Trekker Rites of Passage, the graphic novel that mm -hmm. Ruth and Darren sent to me. But they even <laughs> they even managed to get Ron to do a, a sketch of, of the main character, Mercy Sinclair, uh, a head sketch on the inside cover and to, to autograph it to me. So that's really cool. That was my first introduction to this uh, particular universe. And that's what yeah. we're going to talk about today. Uh, so, but you know, then the funny thing is just to take that a step further is after becoming friends, I purchased from a Kickstarter, the complete journey volume one, which starts, I guess it's with dark horse presents number four and it ends right. with rites of passage. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's, it's quite a voluminous, beautiful book. It really is a beautiful <laughs> book. But that was after we became friends, and I didn't manage to get you to give me an autographed copy of that. I don't know why that worked out that way. Um, yeah, it depends on – well, the Kickstarters, they're, they're tricky uh, as far as arranging to have books signed and autographed and stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky process, especially for the hardcovers because, as you say, it's a voluminous book. It's, it's like 500 and – 28 pages i think it's it weighs over four pounds <laughs> so um moving those things around you know from printers to me and to shipping people and stuff it's it's tricky so i'll, I'll i'm ironing out logistics with every campaign because <laughs> there's different challenges each time it seems yeah well that's, it is still a relatively new process the whole kickstarter thing i mean it's been a few years going now mm -hmm. but it but it isn't you know something that uh you know that that's been around our whole lives, like so many other things in the comic book industry. Yeah. <laughs> so so it's you know, I guess it's a there's a learning curve to it, uh, but I think I think you've kind of got it down as much as anybody else that I've seen. 
But I want to take us back, and, and again, just for anybody listening, we're going to talk about Ron's newest Kickstarter uh, project. But before we get to that, I think there's a very big possibility that a lot of people who would listen to this may not be familiar with Trekker. So I think we should start there. Uh, okay. So again, we, we started on Dark Horse Presents number four, which I believe is 1987. Uh, mm-hmm. I happened to look on eBay yesterday to see if that was like a key issue that they were getting big bucks for. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I saw, I saw Dark Horse number four for like $50 and I was like, well, that's not bad. Uh, yeah. only it was a different one. It was a different volume, mm. apparently. Uh, I, I did find Dark Horse Presents number four with the introduction of this particular story uh, for $10, which is still not terrible. I mean, it's yeah, it's a decent mock-up. I, I think it probably we need to we need this character to become more well known. And, and you know, that book be one that that they're selling for the big bucks. Uh, yeah, so, let's hope. So why don't, why don't you start off by just giving a little little background of where the character came from, where the, actually where the series came from, because there's a bunch of characters, uh, yeah. you know, how, how you developed it. Um, okay. Well, yeah, this, we, we go back in the, the misty days of yore, um, back to the mid 1980s when Dark Horse was just starting. They were a small, it was, this is right when the, the black and white boom was, was happening. Independent comics were, were, and companies were starting to pop up in places like Chicago and California. And, uh, and little town, well, it's actually in Portland is where Dark Horse started. They're now based in Milwaukee, Oregon, a few miles down the road from Portland. But um, I had um, I'd been living in New Jersey where I got my start working for DC and a little bit of work for Marvel, and um, was out there for a number of years. But then I moved back to Portland, Oregon, which is my hometown. Um, and the summer that I moved back to Portland, um, thinking at the time I was moving three thousand miles away from the comics industry. Because back then it was pretty much Marvel and DC. That's what comics were. Um, again, the, 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 some independence companies were starting to come up, but they weren't really on my radar anyway. <clears throat> anyway, so um, that summer I was invited to appear as a guest at a local comic book show. This is before we called them conventions, really. <laughs> and um, these two tall men came up to my table and introduced themselves to me uh, and saying they were starting up a little comic book company. And it was Mike Richardson and Randy Stradley who were, starting Dark Horse Comics. And they were they had done a book called Boris the Bear, um, sort of a novelty comic. It was sort of a riff on the um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, and that thing had been like a surprise hit, and it, it sold a lot of copies. So they had some money in their back pocket, which a lot of these little startup companies back then didn't really have. And I think very wisely, they chose to, to try to invest that money in talent. So they wanted to get people that were already established working professionals to come and work for their, their company. Um, and at the time I was thinking to myself, well, these are a couple of very nice guys to chat with, but I don't know who they are. I don't know anything about how well they think they can run a business and their little company could be, you know, belly up in six months. I was working on a, a the, I was drawing the warlord comic book for DC at the time. And, uh, I thought, why would I, you know, leave that job to work to do something this uncertain. And then one of them, and I can't remember if it was Mike or Randy, but they just sort of leaned over the table and got close to me. They said, if you come and work for us, we will pay you your rate and you can do whatever you want. If you want to create and write and draw your own series, or you want us to find a writer to work with you, we'll, and I, I just said, well, how can you say no to that as a creator? You don't get that kind of an invitation. 
mm-hmm. um, very very often, if ever. And, and uh, retain full ownership of your property, right? And because yes, because Dark Horse was just starting out then. They, you know, that, that's the way it was. Um, people like myself were able to create our own projects and uh, retain ownership of it. So it was the, the opportunity was amazing. It was me being in the right place at the right time. Um, so anyway, I, I but I felt if I want if I'm really going to do this, take the gamble, you know, of going with this independent company, I better come up with the property that or a, a concept for a series that that is my dream job, <laughs> really. And at the time, I loved science fiction. Um, I, I I was intrigued by the idea of um, a strong female lead character who was dressed appropriately to be to do something rough and tumble like a. You know, a bounty hunter. Not like Vampirilla? <laughs> exactly. Well, most of the female characters uh, around in comics that time, you know, they tended to be dressed like strippers or, or, or showgirls or something like that. And I don't have anything against that look, I guess, but, but it's certainly for a character that I wanted to be sort of have a sense of real worldness and groundedness to it, a certain amount of believability or credibility as far as I could, um, that wouldn't go because, again, I thought. Uh, action adventure is my jam and science fiction comics in that regard. So um, anyway, so I, I put together an idea for a series that would start um, with small scale stories set in sort of like a Blade Runner sort of crime, noir, dark, you know, urban setting um, and start up telling sort of small scale stories there because I thought I could handle that. I was still a novice writer at the time. But I knew that ultimately I'd want the series to grow. I'd want the character to evolve, the world become more nuanced and complex, and the stories to expand, take her off planet, get her more caught up in the larger wheels grinding against each other to shape the course of mankind in the stars. So I wanted one of those stories that started small but became something large in scale, like a you know a sci-fi epic like Dune or something. Um, and I knew at the time that I wasn't the writer. I didn't have developed chops to pull that whole big job off yet. So I started small. And over time, the series has, has grown and evolved in much the way I sort of envisioned way back then in the mid-1980s. And it's certainly held my interest and passion for all these years. So uh, I give my credit for answering the question, well, you know, what would my dream project be? Because here I am a long time later still loving it. <laughs> so how, would, how would, other than, you know, uh, a very capable female... Uh, would you have a, a more I don't know, detailed description for somebody who hasn't picked up the series yet of what they should expect from Mercy Sinclair? Um, okay, she is, uh, she is, especially the series begins, she's very competent and capable and pretty much deadly at, uh, at doing her job, which is she goes out and she collects bounties uh there's often blood involved she's very good at that stuff and 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 eking out at least a living by doing this um this job confidently about everything else in life she is pretty clueless she 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 isn't great at relationships she doesn't know much about who she really is what drives her um and the series is really uh, uh in a lot of ways as much as anything else it's a long form uh, coming of age story or a story of you know personal evolution and revelations and, um, and I think that's that's important. I, I don't want to keep interrupting you, but I think that's important no, okay. because I think if it's just all shoot 'em ups and action, uh, it could get pretty dull pretty fast. Not only could it get dull fast, but it could also stymie you to come up with new things to do. 
Yeah, I'm. That's absolutely. I, I, I um, the thing that draws me to any story first and foremost has to be compelling characters that um, that are evolving. Um, and um, the the twelve year old kid to me loves spaceships crash landing on swamp planets and you know <laughs> shootouts and leaping across chasms and you know fighting the the science fiction monsters all that kind of the flash cord and stuff I, I i do love all that stuff but but when i was creating trekker i i i also wanted to create a story that had what felt like more meat because i think that delivers a better reading experience and it would it needed to involve me it needed to be a series that i felt i could believe in and sort of get immersed in if, if if i couldn't do it as the creator i couldn't expect uh, a, a reader to do it um so yeah yeah and anybody who listen is listening to this uh, you could hear ron and i talk on is it yours on several episodes that we've done together <laughs> and you know if if you're a fan of storytelling and i think anybody who's a fan of comics anybody who's a fan of movies even while they may not be conscious of it that is what they're a fan of uh mm-hmm. And when, you know, yes, the inner child in us wants to see the shoot 'em up at the end or the exciting science fiction uh, conclusion to things. But if you look at all the best stories, and again, whether it's in comics, movies, television, or any other, you know, novels, uh, any other form of storytelling, it's always you have to get invested into the character and then you care about the result of that shoot 'em up at the end. It gives it some, mm-hmm. you know, it earns its its value to you by caring about the characters. So the characters become key. Uh, right. You know, if you, otherwise, otherwise it's a video game. And even video games nowadays feel the need to have a more extensive backstory to them than they used to. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the characters in the story are the vehicle to, to transport the reader or the viewer, you know, into the story. Um, um, I, I, I've heard it said that that, and I sort of embrace this idea that when somebody picks up one of my stories, um, I want them to you know open up and like they start reading the first page and very quickly, I would if I'm doing my job really well, very quickly they will forget that they are reading words and looking at pictures and turning pages in a story, and what instead it should feel like is they will feel like they are. In the story, they're experiencing it. You know, they're connected with the characters and immersed in the environment. And then whether the situation is a small, intimate conversation that's emotionally charged, but very understated between two characters or, you know, <laughs> you're leaping across the buildings and dodging explosions and stuff. The the reader hopefully is in, internalizing that, uh, living that experience in a way, because then. They get to the last page of the book, they close the book, and I don't want them saying, gosh, what a clever bit of dialogue there was on that last page, or what a cool drawing of a you know lizard monster. I mean, that's nice to hear those things, but what I want them most to think is, that was a great experience. I want to have another one of those, or I want to know what happens next to this character. Um, as a storyteller, that's what you want. That What happens next is the question that, if I can get a reader to, to ask themselves that question, then sort of the putty in my hands. <laughs> <laughs> and I do not have the creative mind that you have. So to me, it becomes <laughs> difficult uh, to think, okay, after I tell a story, you know, how am I going to tell another story? And how am I going to tell another story? Uh, and, I, yeah. and it seems like the best people at that plant a few seeds of the next story 
before they walk away from the first one so that you're saying, well, what about this? What about that? What's going to happen with this? Uh, yeah, I always like that element of storytelling. And and one thing I have to tell you, you know, you, and, and again, we've talked about like dystopian science fiction movies and everything. Right. And the most recent talk we had, I think, was on Soylent Green, which took place in the year 2022. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm happy that you made this the 23rd or 24th century, uh, mm-hmm. because I'm not going to live to see the point where I say, oh, that didn't happen. <laughs> I put it just far enough in, out there, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so how how long did you do this uh, directly with Dark Horse? Um, well, it kind of had a checkered history. So she appeared in some issues of the Dark Horse Presents. Then she had um, for a year she had a, a bi-monthly black and white series of her own. Um, but by that time, enough of the bubble had gone out of the black and white market and Trekker, as much as I loved it and it had a passionate following, it wasn't big enough to sustain itself as an ongoing book. Darkos is having to be a little more careful with their, their money. Um, so I, I reduced it and then I was only telling the story, um, in some more serialized stories in Dark Horse Presents, um, a, a standalone issue or two. So all that stretched out over the course of several years, um, and uh, it finally just got to the point where me telling Trekker in these kind of installments that were so interrupted, there were these long intervals between when one story would come out and when the next one could come out, um, and it was unpredictable. And that's a terrible way to try to tell a, sto- uh, a story where each individual adventure is supposed to link to the previous one, you know, and build mm. on it. And like you said, I would plant seeds for characters and and elements in one story and have them, you know, percolate in the background for a story or two and then, you know, come back onto the radar a few stories down the road. So um, it just got to be too frustrating for me and a disservice to the readers end of the series. So eventually the, the last New Trekker story I did at the time then came out in 1999. Uh, it was actually a single issue that came out through Image Comics for complicated reasons we don't need to get into here. The only issue that wasn't published by Dark Horse. Anyway, so so that's how long the first, I guess I'd say, the first run of Trekker was. Um, uh, and then at that point, I just um, I just said I need to just put Trekker on the back burner now. I, it was too frustrating trying to get it to come out on a regular basis because um, I couldn't do it with the other work I had to take on to make ends meet and stuff. And I said, I'll get back to Trekker because I always knew that, that <laughs> it's what I wanted my career to be about. And I said, I'll get back to Trekker when I'm in a position where I can find a way that I can confidently return to it and figure I can tell the rest of these stories in an ongoing, sustained, regular way that serves the series well until we get to the, the end of this, the, the, initial, the initial series as, as I envisioned it. So, and that took 12 years to get back to Twinker after that. So there was a long break there for me. And then, then you went to the web for a lot of you. Uh, yeah, then I, so I what, what I finally realized was um, even though I was so busy, you know, scraping out a living, making comic books and Trekker was in the back of my mind, but I couldn't find a way to get my hands back on the series. But then I, I it suddenly dawned on me that there was the internet and I could do it as a web comic because I knew friends that were doing that. And I said, well, I've got like 200 or some pages of Trekkers sitting in my closet now, all the original art. And I could scan those in, right, and start posting them as a web comic. And that's what I did, thinking, okay, and, and I um, I didn't, I knew I would have to eventually get the stories back into print because I, I don't do Trekker as a hobby. It's the way I want to make my living, right? 
Um, so I knew I had to get it back into print, and I didn't know how that was going to happen, but I said, I'll start the ball rolling by making it a webcomic. And then, crucially, I said to myself, and not to myself, I said, I stated publicly on the website, by the time I finished posting all the existing Trekker stories, the the next new story that continues and picks up right where that one left off will will be ready to come out. So that's what I so I set myself a deadline and he declared it publicly <laughs> and that forced me to, to actually do it. <laughs> that's sometimes then, yeah, sometimes you gotta give yourself that little you you've you you're giving yourself the kick in the butt to force you to exactly yourself to Yeah, action. I had to exactly. And then luckily for me at the uh, the timing again worked out well because right around the time I was I was restarting it, um as the webcomic Dark Horse was relaunching their Dark Horse Presents title, I happened to be at a comic shop where they were uh, doing some promotion about that and went up and said hi to Mike and Randy. And um, they said that they would like to have some Trekker appear in in the, the relaunched Dark Horse Presents. So we talked about that and I said I let them know that my plan here wasn't to dabble and just do a little, uh, you know, cameo Trekker short story and have her vanish off the you know, off the radar again for another dozen years or something. Mm-hmm. I wanted to really make it happen. So we, we had a plan we came up with. So I did a couple of new, they did one uh, small black and white sort of omnibus collection of the existing Trekker stories and two new original stories, one of which was that Rites of Passage story that you'd mentioned earlier. Um, so I was getting some things going with Dark Horse again, but but it, again, it just got to the point where I could see that Trekker, they, they weren't willing or able to put it into their publishing schedule with enough regularity that served what I felt the series really needed and deserved by this point. Anybody who had been sticking with me for all these years of Trekker, they deserved better <laughs> than to have an issue come out and it says, that was a cool graphic novel. When's the next one coming out? And I'd say, eh, no, six months, a year and a half, who knows? <laughs> so um, that's when out of des- pretty much out of desperation. I, and no hard feelings to Dark Horse, by the way. They, they've got a company to run and they, you know, they've got their – their needs and, uh, and interests, and they just weren't lining up well with what I wanted for Tracker. So um, finally I said, if I really wanted to, to have Tracker's fate in my own hands, I need to take the publishing into my own hands, which meant turning to crowdfunding. So that's when I turned to Kickstarter. And, and that, uh, that seems, uh, you know, and I haven't seen the numbers on it other than to know, you know, you've managed to uh, to fund various projects and get them out and, and, and with extras, which means you've exceeded the original goals. Right. Uh, so it seems like it's pretty successful. Um, yeah, I, I, I got to say I'm incredibly, <laughs> I was shocked and gratified to see how. Um, how many people had remembered the series fondly and were willing to to you know sort of make the extra effort to go to the Kickstarter site and pledge money for the book and um, and really pushed it to the first campaign succeeded very well and and it's pretty much built every campaign since then uh, which is what I you know part of me feels vindicated in in that I always felt that if I could just get Trekker to come out in the right format and with some sort of regularity or predictability. That that's that was be essential to, to have a, a growing audience for it. So that's what I've been that's what I've been doing. And then you know with with the original uh, graphic novels, mm-hmm. then we then we go from those to the uh, to the complete journey. <laughs> right, right. Which, the hardcover collection. Which, yeah. as I said, that's that's the one that I went on and I purchased. And and again, I I can't. I can't emphasize how, enough how just how what a nice volume it is. It really, <laughs> really just came out so well. And and then 
I'll, you know, as as a comic collector for years and years and years, uh, I almost have this fear of reading the things I buy because I don't <laughs> want to damage them. And yeah, yeah. when I've seen omnibus collections in the past, uh, they seem exceptionally delicate. You know, you know, you start reading through them and then all of a sudden, you know, the, you see the pages starting to come loose and things are coming out and it's falling right. apart. And, and that would just <laughs> irk me to no end. And yeah. at least my experience with this particular book uh, is it seems more sturdy than that. Uh, you know, I, I'm not taking it with me, you know, on a train ride to read. But sitting in my living right. room with it in my lap and, and flipping through the pages, I've had no problems uh, the, the spine doesn't seem to get creased. It seems to hold up right. fairly well. So wh whoever you're using for your printing process, I think, you know, you, you've made some good choices on that. Uh, and it appears you didn't, yeah. you didn't go, you know, the cheap route. I'm sure there, there were cheaper ways no. to do it. Yeah. Well, I wanted a, I wanted a, a, a substantial book that, cause I intend these to be, um, I guess to do double duty. My, my first purpose for them is to be readable books, um, cause I, like we were saying, like you were saying before, I'm a storyteller. I, I'm not just trying to create something that's interesting and an attractive, you know, um, object. I want it to be a vehicle that holds great stories in it, <laughs> stories that are at least as good as I can make them anyway. So, um, but at the same time, I, I want it to be something that, that does feel good and solid and serious in your hand and, and, uh, and doesn't give you that sense that it's fragile and might fall apart. So. Yeah, I, I worked with a, a print consultant to help me find the right printer who could do it in a quality that 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 would uh, that would deliver, and uh, I feel really glad that we got that that done. Uh, one backer, when 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 he knew that I was going to be doing the the hardcover, he he was lobbying to make the the book bigger in dimensions. Um, I think he was probably thinking more like the size of one of those artist edition books, which are gorgeous books, but I, I don't find those books very user-friendly as a reader um they're just so big you know um yeah I, I think i've i've come up with about as big a book that's you know th that's easy to hold in your lap and turn the pages and you don't need to have like have it sitting on a pedestal or on <laughs> something like that to really uh to hold and get through it so no, I, I agree yeah it's, we, it's approximately the size as far as you know width and, and height uh, of a comic book uh, yeah, it's a little bit bigger. Um, or it's pretty novel, much this. Actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, it, it's a little bit to the dimensions. The page dimensions are a little bit larger than that. Um, uh, sort of expands just a little bit, but yeah, it, it's basically still something that that you can, you know, you can uh, easily hold in your hands and you don't have to like like to prop it up on things. To... <laughs> it would be interesting, and I'm going to diverge a little bit here in something that I don't think you're going to do, but it would be interesting to see one of these individual graphic novels printed in a treasury size, just to really take in the artwork. Well, that would be that would be great. People to say, well, wouldn't it be cool to have a like you know, one of those uh, swanky artist edition versions of Trekker to come out? Um, and since I have all the original art from this series, still it's it's doable. Um, just have to you know, that that's a project for another time. In a way, though, the that um, the complete journey volume one that you've got there has sort of a an approximation of that because the right, very the last end. section in that book, yeah, I take the very first uh, twenty four page Trekker story that was serialized in those few issues, early issues of Dark Horse Presents, 
And we're at the beginning of the book you have there. Um, that story is presented in color. Um, but in the back of the book, I have what I call the artist edition section where I took the original black and white art scan, the inked, you know, ink pages, those original art pages. And I scanned them all in at a really high resolution in full color and printed those in the back of the book. So people can sort of get a little bit of the feel for that. Uh, they're not as large as the originals would be, but, but all the detail is there and it's can be kind of fun to flip and compare the, the pencil versions and the ink versions of those pages. Definitely. definitely. I, and, and then I just said inked in the color version. I'm trying to remember and it's hard to remember. Was that, was that an extra after you reached a certain goal on the Kickstarter or was that always included? Yeah, no, that was a that was a stretch goal. I mean, from the very beginning, I was hoping we might get there, but but that's what that's what stretch goals are. You you you, you sort of um, you know plan them out or hope for them, but but until until you see how much the support you know grows, you don't know whether or not you can afford to add those because all those all those things add more cost to the to the proceedings. So, but right. it was one I was really hoping to be able to add there. And I always I always found that to be. An admirable thing, uh, for lack of better words, uh, that you know, you're going to make X number of dollars per book, you know, and, and how much you make is, is nobody's business but yours and and, <laughs> and perhaps Lynn's. Uh, but other than <laughs> right, that, yeah. no, nobody else has any has any right to know anything. But but when you start adding stretch goals, what you're saying is, okay, right now I'm making this much per book. And the more I sell, you know, each with which each one I sell, that profit kind of goes up just a tiny bit. Uh, but I'm going to take some of that profit and I'm going to sink it back into the book by creating a stretch goal. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, I think that's that's a very positive thing because it's it's showing to me uh, your desire to get this stuff out to the people, exceeding your desire to throw a couple of more dollars in your pocket. Not that you're not trying to make a living. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, I'm yeah. not going to canonize you, but but I still think you <laughs> no, know, and it's, I, it's a I'm, positive thing. No, I'm happy thing. to throw some more dollars in my pocket too. And in fact, the way that uh, the way that I, I build my campaigns, um, it's sort of like it. The two things feed each other. You know, I I add some of these extra um, stretch goal things because I'm kind of a, I'm a fan of comics and the medium too. And so making the books a little fancier. Um, pushes my pleasure buttons too but also you know it just the more of that stuff that happens it sort of adds a certain amount of energy to the campaign for some people and then that comes that comes back to me too so it it kind of it's kind of a win-win situation yeah I, I definitely agree so uh since since uh, rites of passage uh there have been one two three four five graphic novels that are going to be included in the second volume of the complete journey that's that right correct? And yeah that would be chapel town the dark star zephyr battlefields hunter moon, hunter's moon and reckoning on rigel now i'm going to yep. say you know you are my friend but i'm not <laughs> i'm not the best friend in the world because i have not bought those individual graphic <laughs> novels but i will be buying volume two. Oh, good so uh, well, that's that's I mean that's a, that's a legitimate way to go. Obviously, I can't um, I can't keep doing Trekker if uh, if the the campaigns for the the individual the original graphic novels, the trade paperbacks, don't succeed. Um, but I understand that some people are going to you know want to collect all these different formats and versions of Trekker, and I need them. 
But I know that some people who are just going to, you know, who only have it in their budget or whatever to get to get one or the other. Um, and you know, everybody, you know, <laughs> everybody's got to be the, the supporter that they can afford to be. <laughs> I yeah. guess is what and then it, you know. we've talked about collecting in the past, too, and I am notoriously uh, frugal <laughs> in my in my comic book shop adventures. Uh, right. So, you know, just, you know, the, the, but but I do find again, I do. I, I really enjoy the first volume. So I'm going to jump right in for the second volume. So let's talk about that Kickstarter a little bit. Uh, when okay. does that start? That starts on Valentine's Day, February 14th. <laughs> OK, so now when this episode airs or posts, it will be mm-hmm. February 18th. So, okay, so, so the Kickstarter will be underway. <laughs> yep. How long is it going to go for? Goes till March uh, 16th. Okay, so the, so yeah. so any of my listeners who are interested in getting this have about a month to get their order in. But I, mm-hmm. my my suggestion is you get your order in as early as possible because uh, I'm assuming there's some more stretch goals and I want to get them reached. <laughs> Yeah, I've got plans for some some pretty nice ones, I think. Uh, and, and all so yeah, it helps us get the stretch goals, the the sooner backers um, pledge, and also there's just the psychological uh, fact of us human animals, and that is when we see a certain amount of energy uh, going towards something, it, that's attract where it, it it attracts our attention and uh, draws more eyes and energy to it. Um, that just seems to be a phenomenon. And uh, so this, I, I always say to, to, um, to people that are interested, if you're, if you're planning on supporting the campaign, the sooner you do it, the more bang for your buck, the campaign gets, the more support you're giving me, the earlier the pledge comes in, because, you know, other backers will see, uh, potential backers will, will see, you know, what the numbers are looking like. Kickstarter itself as a, as an organization, whatever they 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 track that stuff. I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but I know that in general, if the campaigns are having traffic coming to them, they're more likely to become more visible on 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 the Kickstarter site and in the on the landscape in general. So, it does me a lot of good. <laughs> so I'm just trying to think if it's gonna if it's gonna go live on February 14th. If I buy it on February 14th, which I probably will. Mm-hmm. Can I give that to my wife and say it's a Valentine's gift? And then when it comes in the mail, say, oh, this isn't really your cup of tea, so I'll just keep it. <laughs> um, I'm I'm going to steer clear of answering that question because I don't want to get in trouble with either of you. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a clever idea at the very least, yeah. <laughs> I think that works personally. I like it. I like it myself. <laughs> and, I, you know, yeah, the the um, one thing that I have on the – that I build into – pretty much every campaign I've done is for those people that um, that like to get like commission drawings and, and some pieces of, you know, limited edition or limited numbers uh, rewards that have some of those there. So the earlier in the campaign, people uh, jump aboard the, the greater chance they have if they want to get a commission drawing. For instance, I have a certain number of slots that I will take commission requests for because I don't really do those pretty much other than when I'm running one of these campaigns. You know, uh, the requests I take that way. And uh, if I happen to be going to a convention, I, I'm not doing very many conventions these days. So if you want a drawing of, of, of a character that you like uh, from me, the, the campaigns are probably the, the most sure way you have of getting those. So that's just another little plug for why I hope people will consider checking it out soon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, just I had already uh, 
put a link on the Back to the Bins Facebook page for the Kickstarter. Mm. Uh, and I'm just noting, you know, noting in the uh, ad for it or in the post for it, uh, you mentioned that the Complete Journey Volume 1 will be available as well uh, still. Yeah. Uh, so, so somebody who hears this and thinks, oh, that sounds interesting. I'd really like to get on board, but I don't want to jump in with volume two. Yeah. They can get volume one and two. Absolutely. And, uh, for what it's worth, I, I, one thing I'm, one thing I'm very invested in doing as much as humanly possible is I try to make every, every volume of Trekker, whether it's the hardcover collections, of course, or even the individual books, um, which are, they're roughly 120 to 140 pages long, the, the individual trade books. But my, I figure with that page count, uh, and with the, the story structure of this series, um, I should be able to, in every volume, make it work as a good standalone story that, that introduces the, the characters, the, the elements of the series that are important, um, and then tells a complete self-contained adventure in every volume of Trekker. Um, that brings that story, that means way to a resolution. Whatever the challenge, the immediate challenge she and her friends or whatever are facing pretty much gets resolved in that story. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, B and C plot lines that are being developing and percolating in the background that that carry on through the series. But but I want each story to work. Like if it's the only story of Trekker that you come across, um, you should be able to pick it up, get quickly introduced into the story, uh, uh, um, oriented to the world, all that sort of stuff, uh, and the same is really true with with uh, the second volume of the complete journey. Um, it starts with uh, Mercy is is on Earth, um, and uh, she. But it, this is the story where the shift of focus and her sort of base of operations shifts from being on Earth to being more out in the stars. So. It works as a good starting point too, if, if if you don't have the volume one stuff. But for people that do want to have all the backstory stuff, uh, it's all there in that first volume. So, and for people who to... are interested in learning a little bit more about the character, and and I can totally understand again, being the frugal gentleman I am, uh, that <laughs> that they may not just say, "Well, let me just spend money," because I heard that you know Paul talking to this guy for an hour. <laughs> uh, I would suggest a couple of things. First of all, you can go to trekkercomic.com. And you can kind of see some background information there, uh, and some, see the you know Ron's artwork and, and different things and you know pages that get posted, which are terrific. Uh, the other thing is we mentioned our friends Darren and Ruth, uh, and they do a podcast called Trekker Talk uh, that's available for free to download and listen to. Uh, so I would suggest that you can you know listen to that as well and get some background information that way. Right. Yeah, that's thank you for mentioning those things. Those are those are great points, um, because I, I anybody who is probably anybody who's backed very many comic book um, Kickstarter projects may have had an experience similar to mine. And that is that there are there are people who can build a Kickstarter campaign that looks very attractive, They'll have one or two really nice eye catching images and um, a pithy description, uh, like their, their pitch, you know, um, to describe the series. And it sounds like there's cool concepts and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I back some of those, those uh, campaigns. And when the book arrives in the mail and I read it, 
uh, the story it just it, it's somehow lacking. The, the it doesn't it doesn't hold together as well. It doesn't live up to the promise that I saw in the original pitch. Um, and like if you're in a comic shop or whatever, and you can flip through a book that you're interested in, you can sort of get a sense of that better. But it's it's for me it's harder to do that on on a lot of Kickstarter campaigns. So yeah, right. You're you're right that people have ways they can check out Trekker, dip their toe in the water, read some you know sample pages from the stories that are posted on the website or whatever, and see if they think that it might work for them. I I, I feel there's a pretty good chance that they'll they'll see something that is intriguing enough and they'll. They'll want more. I sure hope so. Um, I, I think they will personally. That's yeah. I, I definitely recommend that they check it out uh, <laughs> and and see what you know. See see what's there. I I happen yeah. to you know. I I I believe I have a good eye for what is good artwork, mm-hmm. and then you take that into the subset of good artwork that fits the style that I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> You know, it's 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 not really a Venn diagram so much as a subset, um, <laughs> but your your style happens to be one that definitely fits my personal liking. It's got, well, it's got a clean style to it. It's got a, you, I think you have a good storytelling uh, ability in, in the way you you set up your panels, uh, and it never gets it, it doesn't. Again, I'm talking this good artwork that I don't like. Uh, some of the good artwork that I don't like is kind of a more of a muddy look, and, and I don't think you have that. I think you do kind of fit that futuristic style very well. So uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to make this just a, a, oh, let me talk, you know, let me just compliment Ron all day uh, thing. But, but I, I <laughs> why, would... why not? I'm, I'm going, keep going. I'm, I'm loving it. <laughs> I think any regular listeners of the show have heard me review enough comics that they understand what styles I like and what styles don't fit my necess- my tastes particularly. So so just by my saying that I think they might have an idea of where, you know, what, what to expect before they even sign into it. Uh, you know, it's kinda interesting, you know, looking through pages from nineteen eighty seven to now. Oh uh, boy. You yeah. know, the the, the 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 breadth of time that has passed since then. And you know, I've grown to appreciate more as I've been doing this podcast now that we're, you know, well into the 500s in our episodes, uh, seeing different artists when they were 20, 30, 40, 60, 70, 80, <laughs> and you see a yeah. lot of them that in their later years, and I don't want to say you're in your later years, you're not that much older than me, uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, as they, as they go on, you, you, you start seeing them to either they've deteriorated in their ability a little or maybe they just feel a little rushed and they don't give it the same effort that they did when they were younger and hungry. But looking Mm -hmm. at at your work, like looking at the recent work, I don't see any real difference in style from when you were in your thirties. Well, thanks. That's, that's good. I mean, if anything, I I hope that what I've done is um, just gotten a little more solid at some of the fundamentals. (laughs) Well, that's, Um, uh, yeah. And that's, that's not to say that there's no difference whatsoever, but I'm, I'm talking about, you know, the sloppiness. I don't see the sloppiness oh, of that I see yeah, with people no, after yeah. they've been doing things for a long time. Yeah, I've um, I've been able to, you know, I guess retain that sort of focus. I, I, I guess, you know, you know, um, I, I, I've I've been lucky enough to to work with and learn from uh, and interact with a lot of really great uh, artists, uh, peers of mine, uh, mentors, that sort of stuff. Um, None more important to to my own personal evolution than Joe Kubert, 
um, who I, I went to his school in New Jersey, and uh, I had you know idolized Joe's work when I was a young man reading comics, uh, Sergeant Rock and Enemy Ace, and for me particularly, um, his adaptations of the Tarzan. Uh, novels that he did at DC in the early 70s. Uh, when I was a kid, ah, I just those things knocked my socks I off. I always got a big um, kick out of like the feathered inking that he would do, and I've yeah, never seen yeah. another artist who was able to embrace that and do it the way he did. Yeah, not quite the way that Joe did. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, there was just something very sort of um, for Joe's work. It was very, very primal to me. It was like the, the work was done with a certain Hmm. A rawness that wasn't a crudeness. I can't really find a great way to, to, to put it, but but there was an elegance in the draftsmanship, the drawing underneath it. But then in the way he would finish the art off, it just the the line work that he used was wasn't so smooth and precise that it was lifeless. It had a lot of a lot of energy to it, I guess is wanting to put it. Anyway, but Joe's um, when I went to his school. You know, I mean, he's just he's just a draftsman who's just working on a completely other level. So I could do more. I could do no more than maybe try to borrow, you know, a little fragment of that to try to figure out how to do myself or to be inspired by and whatever to shoot for. But the thing that more than anything else, the thing that I that I benefit from more every year that goes by that I learned from Joe all those years ago that I got from Joe was just his absolute passion for storytelling, for for serving the story really well by doing the best drawings you can to make that story come alive. And you know, if you look at the last the last work that Joe did, it also has that same sense of passion and, and energy and intensity that that I feel was there in his work from you know when he started working in the golden age of comics, drawing, you know, Hawkman and the Flash in the nineteen forties. Mm. It's astonishing. Yeah. Um and uh, I think a lot of that helped because when you have that kind of passion, when you're when you're invested in the story you're trying to tell, it's like you just it's just like you can't stop yourself <laughs> from putting everything you can into the page. Now that expression isn't getting isn't conveying the emotion quite right. That means the story is going to be softer at this beat than it needs to be. So you just go back there and you know, you dig in again and you try it again. I mean, you always have to pick your battles in comics. Uh, there, there's so much drawing that goes into making one comic page, let alone one story, that I can't sit there and um, make every panel a perfect, pristine jewel. But the idea is to to find the key spots and make sure to you know just nail those as best as possible and make everything else work well enough to carry the water it needs to. That's uh, that's kind of the task. Yeah, somebody said years ago, I don't remember where I heard it. Some artist was talking and. Uh... He said, he said, possibly the worst thing that has ever happened to perfectionist artists is the, uh, the ability to use a computer because, <laughs> you know, much like George Lucas with his Star Wars movies, you feel like, you know, as the artist, and I think, I think anybody who does anything creative at all can kind of relate to this. Anything you do, you're going to look at it with a more critical eye than anyone else is. And you're going to mm-hmm. always see the flaws that other people might rush through and not see. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're going to, you know, every time you see one of you, the flaws in, in your work, I'm sure you cringe a little bit and think, oh, man, I could have oh. done that better. So they said, every you know, the worst time, thing yeah. about the, the digital era <laughs> is you can always go back and change it. And therefore, as an mm-hmm. artist, you never feel like you've ever truly completed what you're doing. And I think there comes a point yeah. where you got to close the book and walk away from it and say, that's as good as I can do. I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> 
Exactly. Yeah. And again, that's something that another thing that we learned at the Kubert School is because we were being taught not by guys who were academic art instructors. These were people who were making their living in the in the in the demanding field of commercial art, which is broadly what comic book drawing falls under. In other words, you're doing drawings, you're being creative, but you're doing it for money and you're doing it on a deadline. <laughs> the more you want to indulge your your impulses for perfectionism, uh, that that is taking money out of your own pocket. I think it's, it's a balancing that, act too, though, because you do want to uh, well, exactly, go close that, enough to that no, perfection that you're marketable. Exactly that, that and that what I was going to say, is, and that's the that's the that's the judgment call that you have to make with every panel you're drawing, pretty much. You know, um, I I'm gonna. And again, it's like picking your battles. Which are the panels that okay? I'm gonna I'm gonna invest more of my <laughs> my work hours uh, into this panel um, just because it's important for the purpose of the story or whatever, you know. But other panels say, okay, this one's good enough. Um, as Joe said, the definition of a professional, uh, I think it was Joe, one of the teachers there, Joe or Dick John, Dick John or somebody, that a professional in this business, somebody whose work never goes below a certain level of quality. You're not going to be, um, you're not going to be drawing at 100% the best you can possibly do every single day. You know, um, you're going to have some days when the stars line up and you're just, you're the best artist in the world for that 24 hour period. And other days it's a struggle to make, <laughs> to make a figure that doesn't look, <laughs> look horrible, you know, mm. but even at your worst days, the work hits a certain standard that, that, that is deemed professional. It's good enough. It, it, for a normal reader, like you're saying, they will get to the story. It won't trip them up. It won't confuse them. It won't be ugly to them or, um, or, or pull them out of the story. It will serve that particular moment well enough. And then you can go on and yeah, better luck next time. The next panel, I'll get it in that right the next time. Um, and fortunately for me, I spent a lot of years drawing, you know, on pencil and paper before I made a switch to working digitally, which I basically, frankly, had to do because it makes it possible to produce the work a little more quickly at, at, a, at a high enough quality that it lets, lets me be able to survive the amount of work I have to do to be self-publishing a thing with this, you know, the, the rate that I'm doing the tracker stories. Right. But I've... I'm, I only made that transition when when I found tools, digital tools that I could use that that approximated what I was doing analog with my hand and pens and brushes and pencils well enough that I felt it was as close to a seamless transition as I could get. Um, because yeah, you're right. I I drawn enough years. I say okay, I know that it's not going to be perfect, but it's good enough. <laughs> sort of. And so I try to take that same mentality into the the digital age too, because um, all the evolution that that Trekker has undergone in the years since I first created it, some of that stuff I want to have um, because the way the style of comic book storytelling is different now than it was then. The, the number of words used on every page has gone down. The number of the average number of panels per page in a comic book has gone down from, you know, the late seventies, early eighties. Um, and I want Trekker to feel like it's being done now <laughs> And at the same time, I want the Trekker page that I'm drawing now to still feel like it's the same world, the same characters, and the same sort of voice as it had back when I first created the series. I want that uh, the, the evolution of the series, I want to have be sort of gradual and almost seamless for the readers, just like I hope the evolution of Mercy St. Clair as a, as a character, as a human being, 
that's that's an incremental thing. It happens one story after another. She has an experience here. She has an interaction with that person there. She has a failure there, <laughs> a heartbreak there, and it all shapes her as a as a growing, evolving person. And and so in a way, the hope the whole series evolves in a similar direction. Well, you know, just thinking about what you were talking about with the the way comics are presented over the years. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about, uh, you know, compressed, decompressed. Uh, right. and, and I can give you examples. You know, I, I, I think like one of the best examples of compressed as, as wonderful of a story as it is. And believe me, it's one of the, you know, it's one of the all time best. But if you go to Amazing Fantasy 15, what is the story of Spider-Man's origins? Like 12 pages, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and they take him from, right. you know, from from being bullied in school all the way to discovering that uh, with great power comes great responsibility all in that <laughs> short period of time. Then when when uh, oh, yeah. when uh, Brian Michael Bendis did it in Ultimate Spider-Man, I think he did it over the course of like eight or nine issues. There uh, you go. That's so, it. you know, there, there's a balance there because uh, sometimes we read some decompressed stories and we're reviewing them and we're saying, you know, you paid $4 for this and all you got was like one conversation uh, mm-hmm. so that you feel like kind of ripped off on. On the other hand, if it progresses okay. too fast, it's okay, well, how did you get from this point to this point without us seeing something? So I'm sure as yeah. a writer, it, it becomes sometimes a dilemma, sometimes a labor of love to figure out exactly how much detail to put into the story. It, 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 it's, it's an essential part of it, and it, it's, it's um, it, it always uh, it always consumes me those sort of questions. I've um, I've come to to um, embrace the idea that the um, the crucial the crucial a crucial skill to have as a storyteller is selection of detail. You know, knowing what the story needs and putting it in there. And if the story doesn't need it, if if the story doesn't benefit from it, then then it, it's extraneous. That's self indulgence. It's it's um, you know it, it's it, it's fat that needs to be trimmed, <laughs> right. um, and that doesn't mean that decompressed storytelling doesn't have its place. Uh, I I I I'm largely coming from the world of more the compressed storytelling. Those are the comics that I read as a kid, and you know the 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 pace of the unfolding of a story that I suppose comes the most naturally to me. At the same time, I've seen enough newer stories coming out that let scenes open up and breathe a little bit more and see how often that can just add so much more emotional weight if it's done well. And um, so now when I'm working on a Trevor story, I will work on my thumbnails. You know, I take the, the script that I've written and I'll do the little, little really noodly scribbly little drawings to plan out what the panels are going to be and stuff. And at some point as I'm looking through those, as I'm working them up. I, I'll read through it and say, does it feel like we moved too abruptly from this scene or this tone or this event to what happens next? Maybe if we put in another couple of panels um, to let that transition sink in on the reader more, then it lets the next scene have a little more weight or something like that. Um, so I am trying to, to incorporate some of that um, into my work. And uh, again, the idea is, to keep Trekker, I, I want readers to read a new Trekker story, and if they've been reading Trekker for 20 years, they can say, yes, this still feels like a Trekker story, but it feels a little bit different than than the Trekker story I read last time in good ways. You know, you mm-hmm. want to have that balance of, I want it to have that sense of continuity, and I want there to be an integrity to the series, that the sh- series should always feel like the rules that I set up 
uh, at the very beginning, I'm still playing by the same rules. Right. But but I'm not writing and drawing these stories in the same environment, uh, socially or culturally, you know, uh, with within the frame of the, the the conventions of comic storytelling, as I was then thirty some years ago. So um, trying to hit that that um, that sweet balance point is is one of the fun challenges, frankly, and it's one of the things that keeps it really really interesting for me. Just that level of the the craft, you know, the the construction of pages and panels is is evolving, and I, I do what I can to try to keep up a little bit. <laughs> and, and for what it's worth, I, I think you, at least from what I've seen, you've had your character grow and change mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times with the licensed properties or, you know, with the the, the company-owned properties. They really don't want so much of that <laughs> because, well, that's you know, right. from they're, one they're issue to the next, that. they want the character to be the same. Yeah, and that's that's something I knew from the beginning of the series. As I say, when I was when I was first pitching it to Dark Horse, I did want the stories to start in one place, and that there'd be this very long arc, <laughs> and the character would would grow and evolve and change and end in a different place than she starts at, um, as opposed to the superhero who's whatever he's in his apartment, whatever he goes out and he has his adventure and he defeats the bad guy or whatever. But at the end of the day, he's back in the apartment again and he's kind of the same, you know? Um, and when you got characters in, from the big companies that have been around for 70 years now or something like that, you, you, you can't have them, you know, grow and age and change a lot because then that property that you're invested in making movies of and lunch boxes, you know, <laughs> lunch boxes or whatever, eh, they're not there anymore. And, so in a way, that's a huge challenge that they have, and some they sometimes they do a better job of addressing it than others. Um, but just for better and or worse, that's not that's not on my plate at all. I'm just one guy doing my story. It's a very intimate, personal project. So do you <laughs> and, do you have in mind a, fi- a you know a finite ending at some point? Or are you just going to continue to have the character grow and change? And as long as there's new stories to tell, you're going to keep telling them. Um, a little, I do have an ending in mind. I have an ending for, I guess, I what I'd say is the story arc that that began germinating when I first created the character. Um, that needs to reach a resolution. This this main journey that she's on now, um, I do I do have that resolution planned out. I know. The, the beats that it's going to take to get me there. I leave a lot of room in my in that overall skeletal outline for um, new ideas to come in that I can incorporate into the the basic shape of the story because I want to feel like each time I'm sitting down to write a new story, I've got I can introduce new ideas and I can be surprised by things myself. But at the same time, I have to give myself some peace of mind and make sure the story has a sense of structure and and it doesn't just wander around aimlessly i try to have i mean every story is 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 basically designed to be the next step to get us to that ultimate resolution that said i i also thought okay what happens if i get there and i'm i'm still able to draw well and people still want more tracker stories and want to support me and this process more i i know what i can do as to continue things after that, I, I, I want to keep it pretty vague because I hate spoilers. Yeah, no, but, I, and um, I don't want you to—I don't want you to spoil anything. Yeah, I, I'd rather but, take the journey as you present it to me. <laughs> yeah, but I do have. Uh, when I first when I first started the series, I knew that that the series was going to have to reach a sort of a, a climax, a uh, an angle of repose, as that great 
phrase is, uh, where the series could, okay, this has come to a resolution point. And, and if it ends here and I get hit by the bus the next day, <laughs> I have created what I consider a whole work that can be, you know, ingested and, and it rests there. Um, that's, that's, I feel that's like almost fulfilling the contract I was making with readers. I've been making with readers all along. I want to get to that point. Um, at the same point, I know some readers are, don't like to think about not having another story to read afterwards. So, uh, and, and I, you know, I've, I've been living with these characters a long time. I love the world I've created and, and, and love telling stories in it. So I'm keeping the door open for more afterwards. We'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how long it takes us to get there exactly. And, um, how we're all feeling when we get there. We'll do, we'll do a, we'll do an internal audit at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just waiting for the right person to say, you know, this would make a great movie. And this way I could have you on Is It Yours to talk about that. <laughs> you and me both, that would be great. Um, people say, well, why don't you have Netflix do this? And well, if I knew how to, if I knew which levers to pull and which buttons to push to make that happen, there would be a, there would be a, a Trekker TV series or a series of movies or something. Those things would have already been well in the works for now. But um, it's just a world I don't know. I don't have any contacts in. Um, I don't know how to pursue that. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I've got my hands full enough just making the, you know, making the stories that I'm doing now. But uh, I mean, if I if if I just happen to bump into the right person having a cup of coffee someday and they they're looking for a place to invest their millions of dollars, I got a property. <laughs> mm, yes, uh, it's, uh, that would be great. But in the meanwhile, <laughs> I'm going to thank yeah. you for spending some time talking to me again, which is always my pleasure. Uh, oh, mine too. And, and I look forward to the to, to getting my volume two. And I hope a lot of people listening are going to say, you know what, I'm interested in that too. And they go forward and do that. So uh, everybody who I'm lis- who's listening, at, at a minimum, go to the web page, check it out, see if it's something you like, and then if you know, make your decision from that. That sounds fair enough to me, Paul. <laughs> and thanks again for coming on, and thank you everybody for listening. Thanks again, Paul. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>